Welcome to First Words, a podcast presented by the First United Methodist Church of Florence. Today's message is brought to you by Senior Pastor Rev. Dale Cohen. In her breathtaking new book, Bittersweet, Susan Cain writes that for centuries, Muslims, Croats, and Serbs lived peacefully together in the city of Sarajevo, with streetcars, pastry shops, Ottoman mosques, and Eastern Orthodox cathedrals. Sarajevo operated as a city of three religions and three peoples. No one paid much attention to who was who, and if they knew, they didn't dwell on it. They preferred to see one another as neighbors, meet for coffee and kebabs, take university classes together, and sometimes even marry across those lines and have children. But the Civil War broke out in Sarajevo in the 1990s, causing people to flee the city to the relative safety of the countryside. As the Civil War raged on, a foreign correspondent named Alan Little watched a procession of 40,000 civilians make their way out of a forest where they had been wandering for 48 hours trying to escape an attack. Among them was an 80-year-old man looking desperate and exhausted. He approached the journalist, Little, and said he and his wife became separated during the long march, and he wondered if the journalist had seen her. Little sadly reported that he hadn't seen her, but ever a journalist, he was curious about whether this man was a Muslim or a Croat. And the man's answer was both humbling and revealing. He said, I am a musician. We claim so many artificial identities that have nothing to do with who we really are. We're quick to claim where we come from is our identity. And while where we come from certainly shapes us, we may discover that we have more in common with someone who was born elsewhere, yet, because they share the same interests that we do, we feel a kinship. Our identities are a matrix of places, values, interests, experiences, influences, and yes, even a little biology. We often find ourselves more similar to someone who, at first, looks pretty different from us, but that's when we just use one variable as the determining factor. In writing to the Galatians, Paul urged against singular definitions of ourselves when he wrote, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What Paul is saying here is that our humanity is our universal identity. Yet when we reduce ourselves to tribal loyalties, we fail to see ourselves and others in the larger perspective 
of who we are as God's beloved children. Tish Harrison Warren wrote about a Scientific American report on political polarization, noting that Americans increasingly hold a basic abhorrence for their political opponents and othering in which a group conceives its rivals as wholly alien in every way. The study continued, this toxic form of polarization has fundamentally altered political discourse, public civility, and even how politicians govern. A 2019 study by the Pew Research Center said 55% of Republicans say Democrats are more immoral than other Americans, while 47% of Democrats say the same of Republicans. We not only see each other as wrong about issues, but we think of each other as evil. Our language contributes to a willingness to dehumanize those with whom we disagree, and it's eating away at the moral fabric of our nation. We are becoming a nation of haters. And we're directing our hatred not to some foreign enemy, but we're directing our hatred toward one another, toward our neighbors. And this behavior is unsustainable. That's why the Bible stresses the importance of loving one another. First John says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Think about it. We all want the same things. Access to food and housing, quality education for our children, affordable health care, economic opportunities, national security, safe communities, and freedom to pursue our choice of religion or some other moral framework. If we want the same things, then why can't we figure out together how to achieve those same things? Well, some may argue, but Dale, these are fundamental differences based on principles which I'm unwilling to compromise. To which I respond, in what relationships do you get your way 100% of the time? Especially if you're married, you know that is not true. The fact is that to be in relationship means we have to compromise. Our scripture for today represents a, a clash of deeply held values. Initially, all the Christians in the early church were Jews who strictly adhered to the law of Moses. And even after converting to Christianity, they didn't turn their back on Judaism. The controversy that threatened the existence of the early church, though, was whether non-Jewish converts to Christianity had to become Jews first, and in doing so, adhere to all the practices of Judaism, including circumcision. The issue came before the Jerusalem Council in A.D. 50. But the debate didn't start in Jerusalem. The debate started in Antioch, where some Judaizers, a word used to describe Christians who were strict followers of the Jewish law, 
who confronted Paul and Barnabas as they ministered to the Gentiles. The Judaizers said that the Gentiles had to be circumcised. However, Paul and Barnabas said, no, basically, they only need to be baptized. The debate went on until they decided that they weren't going to solve anything there in Antioch. And so they asked Paul and Barnabas to take the issue to Jerusalem and to see if the apostles could resolve it. Well, when they got to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem council was called together, Peter spoke first, focusing on how the uncircumcised Gentiles that he had been in ministry with received the Holy Spirit precisely the same way the apostles and the Jewish believers received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter concluded, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Paul and Barnabas then chimed in. They said they had similar experiences with the Gentiles, confirming Peter's testimony. Well, after everyone spoke and all the different sides, and remember that in most arguments, there aren't two sides. There are multiple sides. We just tend to limit our thinking to two sides. But after everyone spoke, James, the brother of Jesus, said their testimony, Peter's, Paul's, and Barnabas's testimony aligned with what the prophets foretold. Therefore, God had opened a door once thought closed, and the Gentiles didn't need to fulfill all of the law's requirements before they could become part of the church. Well, immediately the council in Jerusalem authorized Paul and Barnabas to return to Antioch with a letter outlining to the Gentile believers this new position. Now, it wasn't as a part of our reading this morning, but if you read later in chapter 15, there's an interesting phrase that was a part of the letter that was sent. It said this, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And that little farewell on the end is kind of the way that those leaders in Jerusalem were saying, this is our final answer. This is it. And what's interesting is the requirements that the Gentile Christians would have to keep in the Jewish law were the same requirements that had been in existence for hundreds of years as to how a Gentile was supposed to live among Jews. But that phrase, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and then it seemed good to the apostles and James not to burden the Gentiles further. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit first, and then it trickled down to the people. 
we should note that at some point, everyone in that room at the Jerusalem Council at one time believed that only Jews could become Christians. Every single person there believed that and believed it strongly. But in hearing that the Spirit of God had moved through the hearts of the Gentiles, that's when their position changed. The resolution to the controversy came from the Holy Spirit, and it was up to those gathered at the council to discern what they would do with the news they had received from God. In this divided age in which we live, God is calling on us to take a chance in loving our neighbors regardless of who they are, what they believe, what political party they identify with, and whether we agree with them or not. We need to look for opportunities that seem good to the Holy Spirit, even if it doesn't seem good to us. If it seems good to the Holy Spirit, then that's something that we need to do in opening ourselves to loving our neighbors. Now, we've covered this before. Becoming a better neighbor takes time. We're all busy people. We're juggling our schedules. Plus, we have to manage the anxiety we feel around relating to people who are different from us. So trying to be a better neighbor quickly drops down our list of priorities. Yet, if we want to overcome the increasing problems of social isolation, political polarization, and the fear of others that leave us angry and empty, then we must make time to become better neighbors. Here are three steps I want you to consider. First, we need to move from busyness to being present. It's not what we do for our neighbors that matters the most. It's that we're there for them when they need us. But if we're so busy that we're never available, then we'll never be there for them. Ecclesiastes says this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Think of your neighbors who may be alone and think of not only what a blessing that you can be to them, but if you're willing to take the time to move from busyness to presence, then you'll find that they can be a blessing to you as well. We need each other and we must be willing to spend time together. And I'm not just talking about passing moments, sitting with our neighbors around dinner tables, relaxing on porch swings, and playing games in the front yard. All of this creates space to deepen relationships, to find common solutions to the problems before us, but also to live at a sustainable pace. We can't keep up the busyness. It's destroying us. Through togetherness, we also increase our awareness of what is lost when we fail to make time to be together. Second thing, move from good intentions to realized hospitality. It's one thing to think of yourself as a good neighbor, 
But hospitality, practicing hospitality, is more than good intentions. Hospitality invites us to talk to people that we don't understand, maybe even people that we've distanced ourselves from, or possibly even those that we have already dismissed. In Greek, hospitality is defined as the love of strangers. First Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaining, like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. So, what we see here in 1 Peter is that hospitality is not just simply doing a good deed. It's actually an act of obedience to the commandment of God to love our neighbor as ourselves. We fulfill our commitment to God by loving our neighbors. And it's also fair to say that we renounce our commitment to God when we fail to love our neighbors. Polarization occurs when we fail to spend time with those who think differently than us and we only associate with those who think like we do. Practicing hospitality creates space for reconciliation, for doing the hard work that Jesus told us in loving our enemies, for listening deeply to one another, and for helping us celebrate our shared humanity. And the third thing is to move from superficial interaction to committed friendships. I think we all appreciate our neighbors and we want to love our neighbors but still, we struggle creating enough margin to get to know our neighbors well enough, not just to know them, but to love them and to be loved by them. In Colossians, we read, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And in case we miss the patience part, he says, bear with one another, be patient with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. When we're present to each other, when we're hospitable with one another, and when we open ourselves to deeper relationships, even with people that we think that we have nothing in common with, what we find is that the differences actually help us become better friends, and our lives become more meaningful. Now, I said there were three things, but really, I I think there's something else that maybe covers all three in one, and that is learning the language of the heart. Harold Kushner wrote about a business associate of his father who died under tragic circumstances. Harold 
as a young child, went with his father to the funeral. And he watched as people surrounded the man's widow and children, trying to ease their grief from this tragedy by explaining it away. They thought they knew all the right words, but nothing helped. And as the widow listened to these incessant rationalizations, she kept saying, you're right, I know you're right, but it still doesn't make any sense. Then an older man walked in who was a legendary businessman in the community. As a young boy, he escaped Russia after being arrested and tortured by the secret police. He came to the U.S. illiterate and destitute, but through hard work and perseverance, he built a company that was immensely successful. Despite his success, he never learned to read or write. People joked that he could write a check for a million dollars, but the most challenging part would be when they asked him to sign his name at the bottom. But as this man, this simple man, approached the grieving widow, without saying a word, he just started to cry. And immediately, she began to cry too. And the whole energy in the room changed. This man, who had never read a book in his life, spoke the language of the heart and held the key that opened the gates of compassion where others could not. Hear this. Every single problem we face in the world today is a problem that is presented by hurting people. And until we know people well enough, until we know their hurts, and I'm not just talking about the people who do bad things, I'm talking about every single one of us, until we know each other's hurts, will never solve all the problems before us. We've got to become better neighbors. Fight the isolation that keeps us siloed in our positions and learn to love one another as God loves each of us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to First Words. For more information about our services or how to get involved in our community, visit us at fumcflorence.org or facebook.com slash florencefumc.